Off the Ball Daily. A home for your favourite podcasts from Off the Ball. The performance rankings, a slight tangent, the crappy quiz, and you had to be there. You have to be there, like, but I wish I wasn't there. (laughs) (laughs) Subscribe to the Off the Ball Daily podcast feed right now. Off the Ball Daily. So in a moment, we're going to talk to Amelia Klein, who is a co-founder of Gymnastics for Change Canada. We're going to talk about abuse in Canadian gymnastics. If we do have any children listening, uh, this conversation is probably not for younger ears. Uh, There is a bit of a reckoning taking place within Canadian sport and society after years and years of abusive behaviour in gymnastics and in many other sports as well. Uh, Late last year, Amelia Klein sat in front of the Standing Committee on the Status of Women in the Canadian House of Commons to recount some of her own experiences as an elite young gymnast in what was a pretty rotten system and what she and and other survivors of this kind of abuse are now looking to achieve. Before we speak to Amelia on the show, here's a clip of what another co-founder of Gymnast for Change Canada and survivor Kim Shore had to say before that same committee. As a former gymnast myself and mother of a former gymnast, I know the beauty and the potential benefits that sport offers if delivered with an ethic of care and a child-centric approach. However, the hundreds of reports we have received and arrests made in the last seven months alone confirm our worst fears. Gymnastics is rotting from the top down and the bottom up. I wonder how many of you would choose gymnastics for yourself or your own child if you knew what we do. When you were a child, Would you have chosen to repeatedly feel your physical safety was threatened by an adult bullying you to do dangerous skills that you knew could result in catastrophic injury? How many of you experienced a trusted coach pressing your legs into oversplits while you sobbed and begged for them to stop? But they just screamed at you to shut up. Who here has spent the prime of their life with their face stuck in a toilet bowl, throwing up every meal. Who obsessively weighed themselves or were force-fed in hospital to treat an eating disorder? All the while, the soundtrack in your head repeated, you're fat, you're too ugly to be a gymnast, you look like the Pillsbury Doughboy. How many of you have experienced the confusion, nausea, and panic when a trusted adult suddenly says, I want to touch you. Or had to choose between the safe haven of your sexually abusive male coach just to be spared from the outright cruelty of your female coach. Have any of you lived in chronic pain since adolescence? or self-harmed because the voice in your head said, and maybe still does, you're worthless, useless, lazy. Lastly, imagine spending thousands of dollars on therapy just to become a functioning member of society. Our Gymnasts for Change team is here today. My friends, how many of us can relate to these examples? 
Yeah, incredibly powerful from Kim Shore, who is one of the co-founders of Gymnasts for Change Canada. I'm joined on the line by another one of those co-founders, Amelia Klein. Amelia, thank you very much for joining us this evening. Thank you for having me. Uh, unfortunately, this isn't the first time we have covered abuse in gymnastics. Uh, we have spoken about U.S. gymnastics and what has gone on there through the years many times. And you know, I'd recommend anyone who's listening to go and watch that Athlete A documentary on Netflix to give you know a pretty horrifying insight into what has gone on in gymnastics over the last few years. Uh, and maybe off the back of Athlete A as well, uh, abuse has been uncovered in gymnastics in Australia, New Zealand, UK, Switzerland, and obviously now in Canada as well. As much as, as you're comfortable to do so, could could you share with us your experience of of gymnastics and growing up with the dream of, of being a gymnast in Canada? Of course. Um, I think like many little girls who start the sport, I found it amazing. I, I thought it was the most beautiful sport. It was so much fun. You get to try to defy gravity. It's um, It has so much value when it's delivered properly. And thankfully for the first uh, majority, I would say actually of my gymnastics career, it, it was fun and it was lovely. And it was a sport that I, I genuinely loved and and thought that I would uh, spend most of my life doing. Um, I had the goal of going to the Olympics, like many little gymnasts do, um, and of obtaining a, a U.S. scholarship. And I sort of had my my whole life planned around being in gymnastics. Um, and then, unfortunately, for the last three years of my career, I was coached under uh, a husband and wife team who were extremely emotionally and physically abusive. So the examples that you just heard uh, Kim delivering uh, very much resonate with my own experience. It was uh, daily humiliation, bullying, uh, weighing us, uh, even though we were at the peak of physical fitness, being told that we're fat, that we need to diet, that we need to uh, essentially starve ourselves and, and, uh, being instructed on how to do that and how to do it without our parents detecting it. So uh, it was an extremely damaging experience. Uh, and those three years were hell. Um, and ultimately, when I was about 14, I, I came to a realization very suddenly uh, and abruptly while my coach was forcing me to do a skill that I was not prepared to do. Um, and I just realized in that moment that I would end up either quadriplegic or debilitated by an eating disorder if I continued in the sport that I loved. So I chose to stop. It's rather unsettling to read about the physical abuse that you were put through, that even though you were finding yourself getting injured on a regular basis, that actually those coaches that you you spoke about who came in, uh, Vladimir Lashin, his wife Svetlana, that they actually then rather than treating you with care and understanding that they actually pushed it even further and became the ones inflicting the physical pain on you. Can, can you talk a bit about that? Yes. So it was very common to be forced to train through injury. Um, and because of the training regime that we had, often we were, we were training injured, uh, whether it was from overuse injuries and things like shin splints and broken fingers and broken toes to more serious injuries. Um, but it was also very common for them to employ tactics where we would be overstretched to the point 
And so that's what happened, unfortunately, to me in, in one instance where uh, one morning we were um, warming up and, and there was a, a typical stretch that we did where I would stand in front of Vladimir and he would grab my, my leg from behind and lift it beyond my ear in a standing split. And this particular day, my hamstring felt really tight. It didn't, it didn't feel right. And so I turned to him and I said, you know, I, I don't think we should do this. And he got angry and said, you're just trying to get out of stretching, turn around. And he grabbed my leg and forcibly put it behind my ear. And when he did that, my hamstring snapped off of my pelvis and took a piece of my pelvis with it. Wow. When that's happening, are there other adults in the room? Uh, so there there were other coaches in the gym. Um, and what's, what's their reaction? Uh, I think in fairness, they were, they were horrified, but I think because the, the gym was ruled through fear and uh, Vladimir in particular had an iron fist over everything, um, they were too intimidated to step in and didn't feel that it was their place to say anything. Cassidy Jones is uh, somebody you know very well, another gymnast that worked out of your gym and, you know, went through such a similar experience, uh, broke her leg in three places at one stage and was just left there lying on the ground for half an hour because the coaches said they didn't believe that she was actually injured, uh, which again, to just try and wrap your head around, it's, it's almost impossible for a young girl to have to go through that. She spoke about the unspoken code of the gym and... That unspoken code is a common factor, it feels, within all the conversations we have about abuse within sport and abuse of young athletes and abuse of young girls. Like that code, that code is one of silence, of acceptance, of pushing the boundaries of pain, of accepting, of doing whatever is put in your head that you have to do for that dream of a, a gold medal at Olympics. When, when, you, when you think about that code or if you've thought about that code, when, when does that come into your life what age are you when you when you suddenly your your brain changes as to how you think about the sport and and what's acceptable i think it starts very young and in some cases it it starts very innocently you're sort of told in order to go to the olympics you're going to have to work very hard and there's sort of this attitude of exceptionalism that i think is drilled into young athletes gymnasts in particular of you're different than your schoolmates. You're different than your peers. You are doing something that's so amazing that um, is going to bring you all of this, uh, you know, glory and and fame and um, and amazing things and opportunities. But at the same time, there's a, a cost to that, and you're going to be expected to work harder than anybody else. And so it starts just with that kind of attitude, and then it progresses to the point where. You just expect that this is this is what's required of me if I'm going to reach those high levels. So if someone's screaming at me, I guess that's just what it takes to get there. And so you don't question necessarily that this is abuse when you're in it because it's so normalized. You're just you're looking around as a child. You're seeing these things happening. There is a voice in the back of your head going, this seems wrong, but there's no one stepping in to say that it's wrong. And you have all these other people, these adults, these authority figures that you have been raised to obey and they're treating you this way. And so it's very confusing as a child, but I think when you're in that environment, you don't necessarily realize until you're out of it that that in fact is abusive and it's not acceptable. 
the ultimate trust is put in the coaches doing right by their athletes and treating them with the respect that they deserve. Now that you're removed from it, what have you learned about Vladimir and Svetlana Lashin and how they came to be in a position in Canada to be responsible for so many young girls, so many young gymnasts and were allowed the freedom to inflict the pain that they did? So it's it's very interesting and I, I think it's relevant to our discussion in that this is a very small world and um, Vladimir and Svetlana came from Australia and with the work that I've been doing with Gymnast for Change, I've in fact now connected with uh, people who were originally coached by them in Australia. Um, uh, my understanding is that there were potential problems flagged with their coaching style in Australia and uh we needed a head coach in this club that I was at uh, in Canada. And the the head coach of uh, Canada at the time, the Canadian Women's Program said, well, I know, I know a person and um, essentially didn't uh, allow any sort of argument in terms of who would be brought in into that position. He said, I know Vladimir and Svetlana, I will vouch for them. Uh, you have to bring them into your club. Um, the person actually at the time bringing them in was my dad because he was the president of the club and he asked he said well can i have a reference check you know i don't know these people at all and the head coach at the time uh, of the women's program said no uh, you will take these coaches or you will not have a women's program in your club anymore um so they were brought in and it was immediately clear that their coaching style was um not compatible and it was it was very troubling um and i in fact quit the first week that i was there um but again the the head coach of canada sort of intervened and and called my parents and said she has to go back to that club um and it's it's amazing the institutional complicity that exists with that you have the head coach of the canadian the gymnastics canada uh, interfering in these decisions, saying you must hire these people, knowing that these people are abusive and tolerating that behavior um, and continued to for 20 years. Um, and so they had two decades essentially here in Canada where every child who came through that program was was treated that way. Jeez, I'd imagine there's been probably some difficult conversations with, with your parents, with your dad about now when you're removed from it about going back in because I'm sure at the time all they want is all they want is what's right for you and I'm sure you're probably pushing you have that dream you want to go and you want to go to an Olympic Games and the desire to get there overrides everything but when they have those concerns to start with and you have those concerns what are your memories of, of the discussions you had then and, and how have you spoken about it since? Yeah I, I have a lot of empathy for parents in these circumstances. And of course, hindsight is always 2020. The difficulty that parents face is that they're equally as brainwashed into this as, as the gymnasts are. And I often speak about this um, almost deliberate breaking down of that natural parent-child bond. So the coach sets themselves up as the ultimate authority and they say to the parents, I know what I'm doing, I'm the expert, you need to trust me, you need to not question. And at the same time, they're telling the gymnast, don't tell your parents anything that happens here. Um, and so, you know, I think there is a lot of guilt that comes along with with that, especially when, you know, 10 years down the line, you realize that there are 
implications for the the type of treatment that your your child received. Um, so I've had you know good discussions with my parents. I certainly don't blame them for anything that happened. They were doing their best in in the circumstances that they knew. Um, and it's very, very difficult when you have the head coach of Canada calling you personally saying, you must go back and train with these people. There is no argument there. I understood that to mean I would not have a future in the sport unless I went back to train with those coaches. And so um, there's really no, no option when something like that happens. When do you have the, the realization then that actually going through this and putting up with this, that actually it's on somebody else that you were put in that position that, as you say, if complaints were made, and this is the case in all of these issues around the world, it's not as if this was happening in secret, where often I think people felt that, well, the abuse was happening away from any prying eyes. There was no way anyone could know about this. In almost all of these situations, people did know complaints were made and nothing was done about it. Absolutely. And that was certainly the case with with me. Um, when I quit gymnastics at 14, I stepped out of the gym. I got into my dad's car and I just started talking and I told him everything that had been going on in the last three years. As I said, it, it we weren't really allowed to tell our parents anything. So this was a total shock to him. Um, and he said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I have to I have to protect the other girls in the gym and I want to make a complaint. And so we made a complaint to gymnastics BC and uh, I was interviewed by an investigator and ultimately nothing came of it. So what year was that? That would have been in 2003. And then Um, in 2004, Vladimir was named as coach for team Canada at the Olympics in Athens. And then in 2009, so six years after that, was promoted to high performance director in the women artistic gymnastics. That's right. So I made another complaint in 2009 when he was uh, named to the national team. I was contacted by a concerned parent who said they knew what I had tried to do in 2003, um, wondered if I would be willing to step up again and uh, share my story again, which I did. I wrote a letter, my dad wrote a letter, my understanding is that those letters went to both Gymnastics BC and Gymnastics Canada. And he was allowed to coach in that position for at least another year um, and then was quietly allowed to resign uh, in about 2010. The impact on you now of not just what you went through, but I imagine what you also saw if you're all in the gym together. And uh, I, I don't know where, where certain athletes singled out, but it, by from what I've read, it feels as though it was everybody in that gym was treated the same way. Like, you know, watching somebody lying on the ground with their leg broken in three places and not been taken seriously. What you talk about, like snapping your hamstring, damaging your pelvis. How have you managed to move past it and start reliving your life? So a lot of therapy is, is the answer there, but it's um, you're right. It's not just the the trauma of the things that happened to me personally. It's it's the witnessing of those things and not knowing if you were going to see your teammate become catastrophically injured because they're being asked to do things that they aren't ready to do, or they're being forced into oversplits and they're sobbing and screaming and crying. Um, those things stay with you. Those um, you know, those childhood experiences really do linger. And as an adult, I've had to confront a lot of that. And it's a lot of it 
for me personally tends to manifest around eating. Um, I've struggled with sort of disordered eating and um, fighting against sort of developing a full-blown eating disorder since I've stopped gymnastics. Um, and there's nightmares, there's, you know, sort of the classic PTSD symptoms. And so it's, it's not something that stops when you leave the sport. It's something that unfortunately does stay with you. And so many people need really intensive, both physical and uh, sort of psychological treatment as a result of, of what they've experienced. And that's really what we're in part trying to do here in Canada is, is obtain some compensation for people who are suffering who can't necessarily obtain that treatment. How many people have you found? How many other victims have come forward since you founded Gymnasts for Change in Canada? It's hundreds at this point. So from many from many different gyms. Yes, it's right across the country. Um, We we initiated an open letter uh, last year and we were a little bit concerned. We thought maybe no one will sign it. Um, right off the bat, within 24 hours, we had 70 signatures, mostly from uh, former athletes, former gymnasts uh, who had experienced abuse. We now have over 600 signatures, and most of those represent survivors, and both current and former gymnasts, and as I said, right across the country, coast to coast. In terms then, Amelia, of, of getting justice for you and all the other victims of this abuse, Vladimir and Svetlana Lashin, those coaches around Canada, is there a process in place to bring them to justice? Have any of them already faced courts? Where are you with the the process? So with uh, Vladimir and Svetlana specifically, they uh, left the country last year and are now back in Australia, is my understanding. Um, when I came forward in 2020, again, to the Gymnastics Canada board, they wanted to initiate a complaints process uh, through their internal discipline procedures. The unfortunate reality with that is that the internal discipline process is incredibly difficult for survivors to go through. So uh, I already had an inkling that that was the case, but I wanted to hear it directly from them. And so I met with a case manager who was assigned Um, He was uh, a Russian man, so he sounded very much like my abuser, and I addressed that with Jim Ken as as a potential uh, problem if victims are are going to be coming forward. Uh, But the process he described to me was essentially um, what they do with the discipline panel is, is basically a trial without any of the protections of the legal system. So victims are often put through extensive cross examination. Uh, there's no limits in terms of document disclosure. They can demand your, your cell phone records or any sort of communications you've had with other survivors. Um, and uh, the process that was described to me, I, I told Gymnastics Canada, I personally didn't think I could go through. And I'm someone who's 20 years removed from my trauma. Uh, I'm a lawyer. I understand these processes well. And what they had described to me was so re-victimizing and so traumatizing that I, I couldn't recommend it to anyone. And we've unfortunately seen that happen with um, other cases as well. So we had a very prominent case uh, with Dave and Liz Brubaker, who again were national team coaches. Dave Brubaker was criminally charged with um, uh, essentially sexual offenses against uh, his his gymnasts. That went through the criminal process. He was unfortunately acquitted because of a, a police investigation issue. And then those survivors had to go through the Gymnastics Canada internal discipline process. And if you talk to any of them, they will tell you that it was 
incredibly re-traumatizing. It was almost worse than the, the initial abuse itself. And what about the enablers? Because you went through the process earlier of how Vladimir Svetlana ended up at your gym. The similar process must have happened across Canada where there were concerns, but it was pushed through. And even when concerns were raised again, you were told this is the way it's going to be. Like there is a lot of steps up the ladder of people involved in this uh, past the abusers within the gym. Is there anything happening to to make the process of appointment better, of uh, just a, a proper uh, investigation into how this has been allowed to happen uh, within uh, gymnastics in Canada? Yeah, unfortunately not so far. Um, there has been, uh, certainly we're calling for in- accountability at the highest levels of, of Gymnastics Canada because right through from the time that I was training all the way through to today, there are people who have enabled these, these behaviors. They have promoted these coaches. Um, they have stood by knowing that this abusive conduct has been happening. So it's not just the abusive coaches that need to be held to account. It is the enablers. And there, so there is I'm, a lot are, of work. most of those people still in position. So many are it's there's, there's a lot of turnover in terms of boards and and leadership, um, but what has been consistent is sort of the uh, the consistent protectionism of the of these coaches because so often these coaches are the ones who are at the national level who are going to the Olympics who are producing gymnasts who are very successful um, and so even with the the change in leadership we haven't seen a change in attitude and so even the current CEO has been implicated in in things involving the brewbakers involving other uh, abusive coaches who have been identified and uh, so that type of behavior that type of enabling has just continued all the way through. Amelia, uh, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for being so open and honest with your story and the very best of luck to you and everybody involved in Gymnast for Change over the coming weeks and years. Thank you so much.